if I'm going to be honest with you, I've had a really hard time the last few months tapping into desire and finding what makes me excited. Yes! 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 And that's felt really disheartening. No! 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 F and there's a quote by Joseph Campbell here that I want to read. He says, If you follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track which has been there all the while, waiting for you. And the life that you ought to be living is the one you're living. And so this idea of following your bliss, uh, leading you to live the life you're meant to be living is is paramount, is, is really important. And it's been told to me by mentors and other people over and over. Follow your bliss, follow your bliss, follow your bliss. The question remains to me, what happens if I'm not connected to what brings me joy? What happens if I can't connect to what excites me? And then the question arose, well, what if I actually might be connected to it and I've just shut it down? What if every time a spark ignites, it's put out so quickly by, let's say, negative beliefs or an idea that, oh, if I, if I fan that flame, something bad might happen or people might judge me. And so now I'm in this place of tension where, I don't know, is it that I'm not connected to my bliss, my excitement, my desire? Or is it that I might truly be aware of it in some capacity, but I shut it down so fast that I hardly even recognize it anymore? I bring this up because right now I'm starting this podcast up again and I want to do a little series uh, based on this book that I've had for a long time called Zen and the Art of Making a Living. Um, it's a huge book and I've only gotten a little ways into it, but it's chock full of beautiful, beautiful insights about life, about work, career, jobs. Um, and human purpose and potential and I love it I love it and this is the sort of stuff that excites me and I thought well shit, why not start with this let's just start here and do two short segments short podcasts about parts of this book and so this podcast is an introduction to Zen and the Art of Making Living. It's by Lawrence G. Bolt. And I thought now's a perfect time to just change it up and try something new. And uh, here's another quote to go along with that by Herbert Otto. He says, Change and growth take place when a person has risked himself and dares to become involved with experimenting with his own life. Thanks, Herbert. So if you're willing to experiment a bit and to take some risks, I want to invite you to dive in with me, Joey, and explore what it means to make a life worth living here on This Naked Voice. When I was a kid, the question was often posed to me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And occasionally people would ask me, who do you want to be when you grow up? 
and no one ever really made the distinction between what do you want to do and who do you want to be. But there is a difference between what do you want to do and who do you want to be. For the most part, everyone had focused on what do you want to do? What job do you want to have? And that was the question that was asked to most people. And my answers were varied. When I was really young, I wanted to be a soccer player. I wanted to be like Roberto Baggio, who I saw playing the 1994 World Cup for Italy. Mostly because I loved his ponytails, and I wanted to have all those little strange ponytails like he had. But I also wanted to be a scientist. I'm not sure why. I just thought it would be cool to wear a lab coat and play with test tubes and uh, appear smart. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. I wanted to be a fireman for a very short time, mostly because I wanted to slide down the pole uh, that they have in the firehouse. Uh, and it reminded me of being a Ghostbuster because there was also a time when I wanted to be a Ghostbuster. And when I was little, there was a freedom in answering that question. No one really pinned me down on what I was going to do because I could answer anything. They're like, oh, that's, that's great. You can do anything. But as I got older towards high school and especially in college, the question became a bit more pointed. How are you going to do that? How are you going to make money? Are you sure you want to do that? What's your backup plan? And I was second-guessed a lot. And look, sometimes it came from my parents who were looking out for me. But for the most part, I heard it all over the place in my culture, from teachers, from the media, from other kids who just picked it up from their parents. They wanted to know what I was going to do, but then they let me know either you're not cut out for that line of work or you can't make money doing that. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Quick sidebar to say, my parents have also been extraordinarily supportive over the years. They're also products of the culture they grew up in, stressing security, safety, and practicality first. I wanted to be a musician for a time, and as unlikely as that was going to be, I was encouraged to pursue my learning, pursue my practicing, but all the while there was this message of, make sure you have a backup plan. And that's wise advice and also not very encouraging to say, we kind of believe in you. We don't entirely believe in you. And it wasn't just from mom and dad, it was from everybody. I think we can do better at encouraging people to be the artist they want to be and not undercutting our belief in them in the same conversation. And it's a hard conversation to have, but I think we can do better. And this is where that question of, what do you want to do and who do you want to be starts coming into focus. What do you want to do for a living and how do you want to make your life? What do you want to do for your life? The question of what do you want to do is really asking how will you make money? How will you support yourself financially to fit into the system that has already been built around our society? But the question of who do you want to be is asking what are your gifts? What qualities and values do you recognize in yourself that you can bring to your community and the people in your life? How will you bring the unique expression of who you are into the world for your benefit and the benefit of others? But this is U.S. culture for the most part. We focus on how are you going to be a productive member of society uh, economically, politically, as opposed to thinking about 
how do we help you live into the gifts that you have and bring them into this world so it brings you joy and it serves the people around you? And that's the difference between a society and a culture. A society sees its people only as political or economic entities. But cultures care for their people as natural spiritual beings. And when they do that, they can cultivate awareness of those deep energies of life. And they care to cultivate the unique gifts of the individual. So how do we get here? I think in order to understand how we've gotten to this point, it's important to understand the myths and the stories that come to define a culture or a society, both the conscious ones and the unconscious ones. And I'd argue that one of the more conscious stories or myths that exist in the U.S. today are the stories of Horatio Alger. He wrote a ton of novels that fed this notion that with virtuous behavior and a really good work ethic, you too, fine fellow, could rise from a humble beginning to a, a station of middle-class comfort and security. This all rags to riches idea, you know, more or less the American dream. And this idea has fed the U.S. for generations. But, you know, we're looking to the stories and myths that don't just tell us what is possible, but also what's expected of us about why we do what we do at all. What stories illustrate why we as a culture behave as we do in the first place? So in this episode, I'm gonna spell out one of the prevailing myths that exists in our culture, and that's the myth of the little king. And this doesn't only apply to the USA, this applies to the Western world in general. And it all begins with the modern age, with the invention of the mechanical clock. For almost all of human history, the way the humans told time was by looking outwards into nature, by looking at the sun, the moon, the stars for calendar time. They lived in accordance with the rhythms of nature and with their bodies. And that all changed when time was, I'm, I'm gonna say invented, even though I don't know if you really call time being invented a thing, but when the mechanical clock came about, that was probably around the 1300s, maybe 1400s, and we know that because in Italy, in Milan, there was a big clock tower that was ringing out right around the 1300s. Previous to this, very few people had access to timekeeping devices. Early clocks included sundials, water clocks, incense clocks, candle clocks, hourglasses, and these early clocks didn't do a great job at measuring time like we do now. And I don't want to get into a huge history of time and timekeeping right now, but here's a really fun fact. The Greeks split their day up into... 12-hour periods from sunrise to sunset, but because the daylight hours are longer in the summer and shorter in the winter, an hour length in the summer was different than an hour length in the winter, and that wasn't ideal for a number of reasons, and so they wanted to find out how do we measure time more accurately across the light hours and the dark hours. 
This led to some pretty cool inventions such as the clepsydra, which was actually a water clock that kept time accurately throughout the day and the night based on water pressure and there was a siphon. Again, fascinating stuff, but history of time is not what we're talking about right now. We're going back to the mechanical clock. By the 1600s, some people had watches. And as clocks made their way around the globe, people began to enter into what is the modern age. And why is that? What does that mean? Well, for the most part, our sense of time no longer adheres to the natural rhythms of the outside world. It's become more precise and rhythmic, and it's been broken up into these abstract conceptual ideas of seconds, minutes, hours. That's a total human invention. So, time is now more precise. And time has become commoditized. Time is also valuable. Time is money. How many times have you heard that in your life? And the thing that really changed with the mechanical clock was how many people now had access to it. How many people now could tell what time it was, almost any time of day. We began to obey the clock. We began to plan our lives around this machine, this clock. And we began to become enslaved to the idea of the clock and the time that it told us. So the point of all this is our lives are no longer revolving around the natural rhythms of the earth and of nature. They're revolving around an abstract concept dictated by a machine, the clock. Now please excuse this history lesson. Shouldn't have watched Hamilton right before this. Got clocks were invented in the 14th century with a Europe full of kings like James's and Henry's. We had dominator hierarchies running amok. Consciousness evolving, but it hadn't caught up to the enlightenment concept of individual freedom, where man has dominion over his very own kingdom. The idea took hold, but it was slow to grow. It ain't the whole story, but here's some things to know. Things change slowly in a gradual evolution. The 18th centuries were full of revolutions, with monarchies being grounded, democracies being founded. It was a whole new way of living, old ideas being doubted. Leveling out the classes with mass education, giving every man the power and choice over his station. Science would give him machines, perhaps a life of leisure. Technology to aid him in making his days easier. Government would guarantee his pursuit of happiness with liberty, with life, with governmental benefits. Every man would be king, enjoying his own castle thanks to machines and mass production. He wouldn't have to hassle with the struggle for survival that defined us at our core. But the question still remains, what are we surviving for? And that's the question that remains now. What are we surviving for? Because our struggle for survival has mostly ceased. Most people are not out hunting for their food or wondering where they're going to sleep tonight or wondering if something's going to eat them while they're sleeping. That way of living has, has gone by the wayside. All around the world for decades now, people have been lifted out of extreme poverty at an incredible rate and it, it continues to accelerate. But really, just focusing on the U.S., despite the fact that, yes, there are still problems here and ground to cover in terms of getting everyone to a better state of being, for the most part, we're not struggling to just survive like our ancestors were hundreds of years ago. So with the fall of monarchies, the rise of democracies, the advancements in technology and science, coupled with everyone having access to education, 
as opposed to just the elites. This gave rise to the notion that soon everyone would be able to live like kings. They would be able to live a life of leisure and ease, just like the aristocracy used to do. All we had to do was put in our time at work. And if you know anything about history, you know that working conditions were not that great for a long time. Enter the labor unions. Labor unions were the first to advocate for less work for more benefits, giving us standards like the 40-hour work week. And I don't know if that really seems like a big deal to anybody, but back in the 1800s, a standard work week for people working in factories was 100 hours. So these advancements on behalf of workers were surely positive. And what labor unions and the people behind them missed was the opportunity to challenge the very nature or objectives of the work that people were engaged in. How does this work meet the needs of the humans engaged in it beyond their finances? Instead, the labor unions advocated for the ability for more security and leisure away from work for the workers. And at first they failed. Congress didn't pass anything for a lot of years. But eventually, their rallying and their lobbying worked. That's why now we have only an eight-hour workday and a 40-hour work week. Well, at least that's what it's supposed to be. We, we expect it. In the United States, it's far less than other countries, but these are standards. But we work so hard to get away from work. We want to have leisure. We want to enjoy our time. But even now, the idea of leisure has shifted from what once was associated with, because once it was associated with rest, refinement, and a contemplative life. But more recently, I would argue, leisure is more closely associated with consumption. And this style of modern life prompted uh, a German social psychologist, Eric Fromm, to note that this was producing feel free and independent, not subject to any authority or principle or conscience, yet willing to be commanded, to do what's expected of them, to fit into the social machine without friction, who can be guided without force, led without leaders, prompted without aim, except the one to make good, to be on the move, to function, to go ahead. What is the outcome? Modern man is alienated from himself, from his fellow men, and from nature. So Fromm brings up how this modern way of living alienates us from ourselves, from other people, and from nature. And this is right in alignment with Karl Marx's for aspects of alienation. Now, I love when pieces start coming together from all different parts of my life. A little while ago, I watched a talk from Gabriel Mate, who's one of the foremost researchers and speakers about addiction and trauma. And he was speaking at a Bioneers conference, and he brought up Karl Marx and these four alienations. He said, We're alienated from nature, from other people, from our work, and from our true selves. 
So what we do does not represent who we are. So the nature of society is that it promotes alienation. In the 19th century, Karl Marx talked about alienation, which is a separation, uh, being a stranger to something. And uh, you're an alien to something. And Marx said there were four, aliena four alienations in this culture. One is alienated from nature. Well, at a conference dedicated to looking at the physical and the natural environment, we don't, I don't have to say much to you to show how alienated we are from nature when we're destroying nature itself. The second alienation is from other people. And that means we have less contact, we have less intimacy, we have less trust. We have less of a sense of relationship. And that, of course, as I've shown you, leads to increased propensity to illness, physical and mental. We are alienated from our work. A lot of people no longer do work that has any meaning to them. And that means that, and since human beings are productive creatures, we really are created in the image of God. We're meant to create. When we do work that's not creative, that doesn't reflect who we are, that imposes depression, anxiety, um, a sense of meaninglessness. And when we have a sense of meaninglessness, we'll want to substitute that sense of meaninglessness or that sense of meaning that we've lost by all kinds of other activities. And then we get all hung up on how we look or how people feel about us, what we can obtain, what we can possess, what successes we can achieve. In other words, all the false uh, substitutes which cannot possibly compensate us for the lack of genuine meaning. And of course, what this society does, it sells us a lot of products that substitute for that loss of meaning. In fact, much of the economy is based on a loss of meaning in our culture. Finally, and most importantly, we become alienated from ourselves. Now, let me ask you a question here, and I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you had the following experience? That you had a powerful gut feeling about something, you didn't pay attention to it, and you were sorry afterwards? Please put your hand up if you have. Okay. I think the eyes have it. If I asked you the obverse question, as to how many people have had a powerful gut feeling, you ignored it, and you were glad about it afterwards, how many would not put your hand up? Well, I'm not sure. I'm seeing very few hands here. Well, that means to say, now, you know what you're telling me? You're telling me that at some point in your childhood, you got separated from yourself. Because no infant is born without gut feelings. Their to infants are totally connected to their gut feelings. Have you ever met a two-day-old who didn't know how to express their gut feelings? <laughs> and that means that in this culture, something very powerful happens to alienate you from your true self because the world couldn't stand who you really were. And your parents were too stressed themselves to honor and recognize who you really were. Just as a parent, I did that to my kids without meaning to. And then we become alienated from ourselves, we shut down our gut feelings, and our gut feelings are not luxuries, you know. They tell us what is right and what is wrong. They tell us what is dangerous and what is friendly. They tell us what is safe and what is dangerous. And they tell us what is true and what is false. So when we're alienated from our gut feelings, we have no longer have a sense of reality, no longer a sense of truth. Well, the good news is, the good news is, that human beings can regain their sense of connection to themselves, just as we can re regain our sense of connection to our nature.
and um, empathy, which is a genuine human quality, is in us. We're actually wired for empathy. Even rats are wired for empathy. When you stress rats in the laboratory by shocking their feet with electricity, they're more stressed watching other rats being shocked than when they're shocked themselves. Their stress hormone levels are higher. That's our nature as human beings. So contrary to the myth in our culture that we're separated individual, uh, aggressive, competitive creatures, we're actually wired for empathy, wired for connection, wired for love, wired for um, compassion. So really, to move forward, all we have to do, all we have to do, not an easy task, but it's certainly available to us, is to get back to our true nature. Thank you. The rise of the myth of the little king has given credence to the idea that one day we'll all live like kings. We'll all have way more leisure, way more time. And the truth is, most of us don't actually live like kings. And we won't live like kings. Yet we're all still caught up in the myth. We wish it were so. And because we wish it were so, we end up settling for work, for jobs, careers that do not align with our true selves. We work for years in ways that do not allow us to express our gifts. We work in situations where our value and our worth is not recognized or even sought after. And we do it because we believe that the sacrifice we're making, the fact that we're not fulfilled, we believe that that sacrifice will be worth it to get that security so that we're going to have our own little kingdom one day. And we believe that we're also going to somehow have the leisure to enjoy it. And you know what? Maybe you will get there. Maybe I will get there for a time. Maybe we'll have our little kingdom and we will have some leisure time to enjoy it. But then what? How long will that really be fulfilling to any of us? I want to end this episode with a quote from Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote, For too long, we have been dreaming a dream from which we are now waking up. The dream that if we improve the socioeconomic situation of people, everything will be okay. People will become happy. The truth is that as the struggle for survival has subsided, the question has emerged. Survival for what? Thanks for joining me in this episode of This Naked Voice. If you're enjoying the podcast, please help it out by leaving a five-star review. I welcome your questions, comments, suggestions. Write me an email at info at thisnakedvoice.com. There's a lot more to come from Zen and the art of making a living. I'd love to know how this episode landed with you. What are your takeaways? You can find me on Instagram and even TikTok now at This Naked Voice. Have a great week. Be good to yourself.